and um, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17 again, um, and we're not going to read the whole section. Um, we're going to begin reading at verse 24. So let me invite you to get your Bibles to stand, and uh, Debbie's going to come, and she's going to read this passage for us, beginning at verse 24, and then through verse 54. This is the word of the Lord. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his elder brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to be with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, for he put his arm, but he put his armor in his tent. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Lord, we are humbled once again by such an incredible story. Uh, Lord, not because it is so familiar to us, Lord, because it is so powerful a demonstration of how strong you are and how mighty you are and how small-minded we are in that context. So Lord, would you allow us to um, set aside the things that may be distracting us, Lord, maybe struggles that we are facing, but Lord, may we uh, clear our hearts and begin to see with eyes, Lord, that are like yours, that we would not be fashioning and shaping our lives based on our own understanding, but Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and hearts, Lord, that are tender and receptive to your truth. Lord, we, we need you desperately. Lord, I, as your messenger, simply want to be your mouthpiece. Have your way with us, and would you be glorified now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we took off and started to fly in our study of 1 Samuel chapter 17. But as I flew, I ran into some turbulence and things got a little shaky and then the plane ran into a, a flock of seagulls and took off course and eventually what I can only describe as a crash landing took place and we ended up at the right airport, Christ the Champion International Airport, but I truly felt that we missed the runway and that I ultimately left you with a bumpy ride and in a fog as to the real essence of this passage. And I, I wrestled with that on Monday and Tuesday as I was preparing for 1 Samuel 18. I just was consumed with the fact that we didn't do enough diligence in 1 Samuel 17. And so this morning, I want to be like a good mechanic that's recalling your car and, and looking at your engine once again and making sure that the screws are tightened. I wanna be like a, a good tailor that is re-stitching some of your clothes so that 
the garment of this passage is not just somehow placed in the closet and said, I'm not exactly sure what that's all about, and so I'm just not gonna wear it. You know those, those pieces of gar- th- clothing that you've purchased years ago that you tried on and you're like, eh, and they've sat in your closet for years. We don't want that to be true with 1 Samuel 17. This is such a familiar passage to us. This is so important even to the unfolding of God's purposes, but it comes with its own set of problems. And I want you to notice that it is packed with riveting detail. We didn't read it this morning, but we're told about the height of Goliath, and it's staggering, about nine foot six or so. The weight of his armor was about 125 pounds. The weight of the tip of his spear, about 16 pounds. The cheese and the bread in the basket and the sheep in the field and the shepherd boy, the lion and the bear and the five smooth stones are all just part of the the details of the fabric of this story. And it's a story that wants to show us that this is real life with real life people who are facing a real life threat and interacting with a real life God. God wants us to know that his truth is rooted in the activity of his people. That God is not just a God who speaks, but God is also a God who speaks and acts on behalf of his people. And he wants us to realize that his truth speaks into harsh realities of living in a fallen world. And friends, that is where we are. We face insurmountable struggles. And God doesn't just abandon us. He doesn't just say, well, you know, I've told you some things now. Just go out there and do it, and I'm not around. No. As we sang the song today about the angel armies, they are, in a sense, an awareness that there is a heavenly host that is at work in, in the world that we can't see, but we can see it because it is recorded for us in Scripture. So by faith in what Scripture says is true, we move through life and we face the struggles that are before us and around us, knowing that we're not alone, that there is a God who is standing with us. Now there's two important passages that will help shed light on our text this morning. They're Judges chapter three, verse five, and 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse seven. Let's look first of all at Judges three, five, because in this passage we're told the reason for Israel's skirmishes and battles. In verse four of Judges three, we're told about these different peoples and listed in there are the Philistines in particular, and we're told in verse four, uh, sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse four, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which, the, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. In other words, every time Israel came into a battle or into a skirmish, it was for Israel a test. A test of their obedience. A test of their loyalty. A test of their confidence in God. And then also in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, we find the importance of seeing the heart. It says there, for the Lord sees not as man sees, 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so when we, we take those two kind of backdrop texts to help us understand a little bit about what's going on here, we can come to this particular theme, this particular conclusion. At 1 Samuel 17, we can confidently say here that Israel's conflict with Goliath is a test that reveals the heart. Here they are, facing battle once again. How are they going to respond? In whom are they going to put their trust? The battle reveals the heart. The conflict reveals a belief. And as we work through this text, you're also going to see three primary hearts that are going to be on display. The heart of Israel is going to be marked by failure. The heart of David is going to be marked by faith. And the heart of God is going to be marked by faithfulness. Failure, faith, and faithfulness. But this story is also about how we perceive life. Do we see life and our enemies the way God sees them? Or do we see life and our enemies only from a human perspective? because those are two completely different perspectives. Those are two different ways that we will struggle with what is before us. Either seeing it God's way or seeing it from our own vantage point, a human vantage point, which then leads me then to say that in this passage are revealed for us multiple worldviews. We have the worldview of Goliath, a polytheistic pagan who worships gods and believes that if one nation defeats another, that one god has defeated another god. A worldview of Saul and the armies of Israel who are part of God's covenant people and the worldview of David who ultimately we'll see will be Israel's champion. So the little background here for the story, just coming into this text, we have seen that in 1 Samuel, the theme, the goal here is God raising up a king. God establishing his king in Israel. And in order to do that, out of, out of this obscure and out of this horrible situation where it says, and everyone did that was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel, God raises up Samuel as the prophet who he uses then to raise up ultimately the people's choice of a king, who's Saul, but he fails and he rebels and God rejects him. And then ultimately God anoints David and Samuel now is in the process of, of, of doing his part um, in, in, well he anointed David, but now we're seeing David beginning to be put on display. And in this particular text, this is, might want to say, the coming out of David. It's all been private up to this point, but now David is going to come in the context that is national. And he is going to present himself by God's providence into this situation. And he is going to accomplish what God determined him to accomplish as the deliverer of Israel. Well, let's begin this morning by thinking about Israel's failure, Israel's Failure. We've already seen in 1 Samuel that the Philistines are a constant menace to the people of Israel. 
It seems like they always hear what's going on, right? And they always come. And they're just a relentless thorn in the flesh for Israel. And they can thank Saul for not finishing the job the day he made his rash vow. But on this day, the stakes would be higher because this day, Goliath, their champion, is on the prowl. And the men of Israel and their king would be tested once again. So we can rightly say that this encounter that Israel is having with Goliath is a test to see if they would obey the commandments of the Lord or not. Now what does it look like to obey the commandments of the Lord? What kind of picture does that portray in this particular context? It means that they they would show evidence of their love for God by being concerned for the honor of his name. When he is being defied, when the name of the Lord is being abused and ridiculed and mocked, those who love him will respond in a way to stand for his integrity, to stand for his honor. And that is true for we who are God's children. What's it like when you're walking in Walmart and you hear someone using the Lord's name in vain? There's a part of you that's just like, ah! Or maybe you're watching something on TV and you're like, oh, why do they, why do they have to do that? You don't like it, why? Because you are a person who loves the Lord. And when you hear his name taken, when you hear him mocked, when you hear Christianity scorned, there's a part of you that says, no, no, because you love him. And you may not feel like you're in a place to stand up for the honor of his name, but if you love him, you want to. My friends, that is one of the demonstrations that we see is is screaming in this text. For 40 days, the armies of Israel and the Philistines drew up together to fight. And for 40 days, the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, would taunt the armies of Israel every morning and every evening. And he says this, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And even though the army of Israel would line up against the Philistines, the reality was that each day was another loss of downs for the armies of Israel. Each day was a further retreat for them. Each day they were digging the hole of failure deeper and deeper and deeper. Now why? Because the Philistine champion, he was terrifying. With all of his armor, he appeared impregnable. A mass of bronze, a mass of muscle. I mean, no man could stand against this guy and win. If you went up against him and you fought him, you were insane. You couldn't survive. He was a massive killing machine. Now, if you went up against him, you would be slaughtered like a sheep. You'd be ripped apart and scattered on the battlefield. You would be the laughing stock 
of the Philistines. But each day when Goliath came out, he would say, here's in verse eight, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. And of course, in this story, the silence is deafening, isn't it? 40 days. And yet, from the Israel side, silence. The men of Israel were only following the actions of their king. He was their chosen king. He was their champion. And he was chosen to lead Israel into battle. But where is he? Again, crickets. Oh, he's there, but he is not answering the call. If we reach back into 1 Samuel 15 and 16, we're reminded that Saul was a rebellious king and he was forsaken by God. And at one time, he was empowered by the Spirit of God, but the presence of the Spirit of God was removed from him and placed on another And so now, Saul has nothing. He has, basically, a reservoir that is empty of power. He's only functioning in his humanity. He has no ability. He has no strength. And what do you do when you don't have God? What do you do when God has abandoned you? What do you do when you've been rebellious and you have been rejected? Well, you refuse to do what you've been given the responsibility to do. You begin to see things from a human perspective rather than God's. Your worldview changes drastically. And when you don't fight God's battle as God's man, you fight them with human methods. So your thinking changes, your behavior changes, and your carefulness to consider God diminishes. Now specifically, how did Israel respond to the threat of Goliath? There's some words in this text that reveal for us ways in which Israel, under their king, responded to Goliath. Let's think about these words here. All right, their failure brought dismay. Verse 11, after Goliath came out, said what he said, the first word we see here is dismay. Literally, to be shattered, to be broken into pieces. When something is shattered and broken into pieces, what does that imply? It's not a very effective, useful tool anymore, is it? I mean, this is is the impact that Goliath had on them, to shatter them. But not only that, the next one is this. It revealed their failure um, through fear, dismay, and fear. Now, I just want to take you back to a few verses in scripture that again may give context to what is going on here. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 21. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 21. Because now you're going to find God instructing Israel before they go into the land. Here's what I want you to do. Deuteronomy 121 says this, see the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up. Take possession. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you, do not be, or should say, do not fear or be dismayed. Ah, do not fear or be dismayed. 
fear and dismay. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now go to the book of Joshua. Joshua in chapter 8 and verse 1. Encouragement from God to Joshua. He says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. But did you get that? Do not fear and do not be dismayed. And then in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 25, and Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Now isn't it interesting that the repeated statement by God to Israel is what? Do not fear or be dismayed. Do not fear or be dismayed, because I will deliver you. I will accomplish all that is needed to be accomplished in this battle. But now, as Israel faced Goliath, how are they responding? Fear. Dismay. This is the result of something. It's their failure, and we're going to get to what that is in a little bit. But their failure brought dismay. It brought fear. It also brought Flight, verse 24, running away from the battle. Oh, they came out, they did their war cry, they beat their chest, and then Goliath would pop out and be like, ah, and they'd run away. They fled, panicked. But then in verse 25, we see something else. And I think it's kind of, it's, it's not directly stated, but it's, it's there in the discussion, in the context of what's going on. And I'm calling it this. Their failure brought empty routine. How many days did Goliath come out? All right, I mean, after 10 days, you start thinking, okay, what's really going on here? Is anyone gonna fight after 15 days? Why are we here? 30 days. Okay, this is getting old. And you can imagine, you know, 30 days in, one of the, the soldiers sitting and, and, and talking to one of his friends saying, hey, what are we going to do today? Well, I think what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go out, we're going to line up against the Philistines, and then we're going to do our war cry, yeah, you know, bang our shields and stuff. And then Goliath is going to pop out, and he's going to say the same thing, I defy your gods, and nothing's going to happen, then we'll come back and I'll cook breakfast. And then we'll go out again later in the day and we'll do the same thing over and over again. You see what I'm saying? There's just this, there's this routine that happens. And I, I think we, we need to see that there's something matter of fact that's happening among the soldiers. Another day, another defiance, another war cry, another taunt, another retreat. And friends, just think about this. When you are functioning in the context of failure you can get into the place that fighting sin becomes this routine thing that you're just kind of like, well, you know, okay, I'll do this. But, I mean, you're not really into it. You're just kind of, it just becomes this matter-of-fact humdrum thing. But not only that, their failure brought anger. And I think it, 
I think it comes out in David's interaction with his brother Eliab, who hears David asking questions, because David's coming on the scene for the first time, he's just seeing what's happening, he's heard Goliath for the first time, and so he's asking questions, and Eliab responds by just getting angry with him and saying some things to him that are really just over the top, accusing him of just wanting to come down and see the battle, you know. But there's this anger. And listen, when, when you are suffering in failure, there's quite an easy tendency for you to be easily agitated. You, you don't want anyone to kind of bring up anything that has anything to do with your failure and your struggle. And if they do, it's going like, to jump on you. Right? That, that's the way we are. We're easily agitated. Now let's take all of this. Why is this happening? Why were they fearful? Why were they dismayed? Why were they fleeing and getting angry? How do they get to the place that, that this all becomes routine for them? And I would suggest to you that what this text is showing us is that they have lost sight of God. They only saw themselves as servants of Saul, not as servants of God. They line up against the Philistines and offer a war cry, but there is no outcry because of the reproach of God. They had forgotten what they knew about God. They had forgotten his lasting promises to them. They had forgotten that God had promised to drive these Philistines out of the land. So the silence in this story is screaming at us, isn't it? When Goliath comes out and defies Israel, there is no one standing up for Israel. For to defy Israel is to defy Israel's gods. And friends, that is the worldview of the pagan polyistic, uh, polytheistic Philistines. They believe that to defeat a nation is to defeat their god. So who will step in the gap? And who will defend the honor of God? Was it going to be Saul? Well, apparently not. Was it going to be the men of Israel? They weren't doing it. Now, I just thought a little bit. Was it going to be Jonathan? Israel's present hero? Interestingly enough, the text is silent on Jonathan until chapter 18 when it's all said and done. And David comes with the head of Goliath. And Jonathan, as we'll find out next week, is overjoyed and just celebrating with David. But you, where's Jonathan in all this? Well, we don't want to come to any conclusions because we're not told. certainly seems to go against his character to not have responded. But the people have become agnostic people of the covenant who are suffering from spiritual amnesia. These were God's children. These were the Israelites These were the ones that God called his own. And yet, they had forgotten about that covenant. They had forgotten about God. They had forgotten about his promises. So they were rightly men of Israel. 
God's covenant people, but were behaving as if they did not know God. Now, isn't that possible for us as followers of Christ to have learned and been taught and read about promise after promise and truth after truth, and yet we forget, we lose our identity in Christ. See, so many people under the umbrella of Christianity who would identify with Christianity, who claim to be followers of Christ but do not believe in God or the God of the Bible as he is revealed. You can walk around here in Castro Valley, you can walk around here in the Bay Area and you can bump up to people who would identify themselves as Christians but would say, yeah, but the Bible, you know, you really can't really just fully trust it and, and my God is like, See, they're not committed to the God that has actually come to save them if that's what has happened with them. Now that may be something that we'd say is out there, but is it here? People are thankful to be identified as Christians but have no real biblical framework to give them perspective on how to fight the spiritual battles day by day. They don't see God as God sees, but they see as man sees. They cower in the face of danger. They are dismayed when trouble comes. They panic when the world around them changes. And if they look to leaders, they are leaders with empty words that have no hope and no power because they are not rooted in the God of the universe. They're fashioned and laced with some religious terminology that might connect them loosely with Christianity, but what they're pumping out is human thinking. They have the form of godliness, but they're empty of the power because it's not rooted in the truth of God's word. So they really have no answers for the issue of dealing with the real enemy, and that is Satan himself. But friends, if we are thinking that this kind of worldview is only out there in other churches among other people, then we're mistaken because it can be so true for us as well. How many times have you come to church on Sunday and sung songs that affirm who God is and affirm promises that are referencing your identity in Christ and what benefits you have because of that. But on Monday or Tuesday, when you're faced with temptation, when you are intimidated by one of Satan's schemes, you're dismayed, you're full of fear, and you slump into anxiety and depression, and you forget about your identity in Christ. You try and fight the battle in your humanity rather than with the riches of Christ that are at your disposal. And in that moment, although you are a Christian, you behave as if God doesn't exist, as if he hasn't really revealed himself to you, as if he hasn't counseled you, as if he hasn't countless times promised to give you his perspective so that you can face your enemy day by day. You see, we can have spiritual amnesia One moment we can affirm 
the next moment we forget. And we're not too far from these people. We're not too far from the fear and the dismay at all. It is something that we struggle with, and we must be humble with that. And that's Israel's failure. They had lost sight of their identity with God, and as a result, they were not seeing things as God sees things because they were not trusting in what God has revealed about what is true. But now let's think about David's faith. David's faith. Having presented us with the daunting realities of Goliath, the Philistine champion, the text takes us back now to Bethlehem. It might be kind of like one of those Batman movies. Meanwhile, back in Bethlehem. I mean, isn't it? It's like, oh, this stuff is happening. And then all of a sudden, you know, nice meadow with sheep, bang, that kind of stuff going on, right? We just, completely different scene. But David was diligently doing his duty tending the sheep. And just remember that it had been not too much before this that David had been anointed by Samuel as the king. He had not been crowned king, but he had been anointed. So he was, the sense, the king in waiting. And when his father sent for David, he responded immediately by taking the baskets of cheese and grain to the battleground 13 miles away. But when he arrives, he is shocked to see an empty and powerless army unmoved by the daily offense and reproach of their God. He is an outsider, certainly, because he has not become accustomed to these daily taunts. He's the one who comes upon the scene with fresh eyes and a God-centered perspective. And I want to begin just by looking at David by, by saying, first of all, that David is asking the right questions. Let's kind of jump into the text here. He hears Goliath's scorn and reproach. He hears it for what it is. When the soldiers say, hey, have you seen this man who's come up? This is verse 25. Surely, He has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David responds in a way that reveals that he understands Israel's identity. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, there's a tone going on there. There's a perspective going on there that the soldiers had lost sight of, forgotten about. So he's not thinking, how can we ride this out and come out looking good? He's not thinking, what can we do to appease this threat? He's not thinking, well, maybe there's a way we can all get along and live together in peace and harmony. We can coexist. No, David is saying, this champion must be killed. The reproach against Israel and Israel's God must be taken away. And who's going to do that? So he's asking the question that everyone has asked but doesn't really want to answer themselves, who will deliver us from this giant of an enemy? He's asking the right questions. Secondly, he's seeing 
the right things. He's seeing the right things. You see, David understands his identity. His questions, his concerns flow out of his identity. He knew that he's a child of the Most High God, that his God keeps his covenant promises, that the land that he's standing in belongs to him because the Lord claimed it for him. And that God had said, I will drive these enemies out of your land. He knows who he is as a child of God. Friends, do you know who you are as a child of Christ? And do you stand firmly in that identity? Do you view life from that perspective? And he is moved and shaped by that identity. And as a result, this young shepherd boy comes to the battlefield and is seeing the events of the day, not as man sees them, but as God sees them. His worldview has been shaped by his identity with his God. You see, Israel's worldview was that God was gone, that they couldn't do it, that they couldn't fight, they had forgotten. And so now their thinking and their behavior has changed. But David's worldview was still rooted in his identity as a child of God. So when David is brought to Saul, he realizes that Goliath was not merely challenging the Israelites, but that he was challenging the God of the Israelites. The shepherd boy is moved by the offending words of Goliath, and he is unwilling to let it go. And friends, we must understand this reality that, that when we're tempted by Satan, the challenge really is not between us and Satan, but between Satan and our God. Yes, we're told to resist the devil and he will flee from us. But it is God who fights our battles for us. And when God fights for us, who do you think will win? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You know this passage well. This is why the scripture tells us in Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10, finally, it says, be strong, what? In yourself? Is that what it says? No, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, in other words, belonging to God, from God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then it talks about the specifics of that armor that are a great revelation to us, but even that armor is not from us. That is truth from our identity in Christ that we are holding on to, but ultimately we are to then be strong in the Lord. So even the soldier of Christ that is wearing the armor of God is not really the one who's fighting the battle. It is God who's fighting that battle. Now we have a responsibility. We're told to do things, but God is the one who brings the victory. So David sees the battle for what really is, a battle that belongs to the Lord. 
David sees the right things. He asks the right questions. Next, David makes the right choice. Based on the question that he asks and the observation of the events of the day, David makes this, makes this right choice. It is, first of all, a, choi- a choice to fight for God. It's a choice born out of honor for the name of the Lord. The Bible says in Proverbs 28 and verse one, the wicked flee when no one pursues. In other words, they're, 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 they're wicked and because they think that someone's coming, they scatter away, all right? But it says, but the righteous are bold as a lion and there is a lion that has shown up in the valley of Elah this day and he is the a lion in the line of another lion, the lion of Judah, who is Christ himself. David is choosing to fight for his God. And David, having been brought before Saul, the king says, let no man's heart fail because of him. You're nuts. Look at him. How are we going to feed him? Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. You can just imagine if there are people around Saul listening to this. Like, what are you talking about, squirt? Saul even says to him, you're just a youth. He's been a, a warrior from his youth. This is not a statement of arrogance, but a statement of faith in his covenant-keeping God. God has been offended. He's been dishonored. He's been ridiculed. He's been mocked and scorned day after day after day after day after day. Do I have to repeat myself 40 times and twice? That's 80 times. There comes a point in time when a follower of God who has an identity with that God says, Enough. He says, we cannot allow this to continue. I cannot allow this to continue. And although Saul and the army had been paralyzed by fear, David is ready to fight, not for himself, but for the honor of his Lord. He's making the right choice because he is, as a righteous young man, he's concerned for the honor and reputation of the God of Israel. He knows that God is living even though the armies of Israel gave the impression that he was dead. He knows that God is almighty, even though Israel gives the impression that God is powerless. He knows that God is the keeper of the covenant, even though they have behaved as if God was indifferent to them now, that God doesn't keep his covenant promises. And he knows that the God that he is worshiping is able to deliver even though they didn't expect him to. It was David's theology that drove his passion and unleashed his courage of faith. See, it wasn't David's faith in his faith. It wasn't this kind of like self-drummed up, I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna do this, I just gotta have faith in, no. It wasn't having faith in his weapons, it wasn't faith in himself, it was a simple, Faith that is rooted in theology, knowing who God is, what he is like, and what he has said. 
And if that is true, then this is what I must do. And I will trust him no matter what. So it was a choice to fight. He knew it was a battle that he was being called to fight, but that God was going to win. It was also a choice to fight because of God. Because of God. So this was a choice that was based on past experience. While David served as a shepherd, he had defended his flock by protecting them from both a lion and a bear, striking and killing them both. We'll pick it up in verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He's basing his choice to fight not just for the honor of the Lord, but also based on what God has already done in the past, proving himself to be a God who is faithful, to proving himself to be a God who will deliver. So it's because of God that he's able to come and make this choice. It was also a choice to fight by God's methods, by God's methods. And of course, emphasizing here, although Saul wanted David to wear his armor, we can conjecture all we like as to why that is, David was most comfortable to face Goliath with what he already knew, a shepherd's staff, a slingshot with some stones. The point is that David was seeing as God sees and acting upon it, and it is similar to the prayer that the Apostle Paul makes in the middle of his letter to the Ephesian church, Ephesians chapter three and verse 20 and 21. Here's what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we, than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me read that again. And just think about if if you know what, what David is holding on to. Now to him. God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever, amen. We fight not with our power, not with our strength, but we fight in a way that is conformed to God, that it is God that is working through us. And so friends, that's why even in the context of church, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves, no matter what we're doing, is this. Where is the power? We wanna grow our church. What do we do? Well, we can do all sorts of different things. Say, well, people will come if we do this, and we do this, and we do this. Friends, what's central to what God says moves his church is the preaching and the ministry and the teaching and the effecting of the word of God. That's where the power is. You don't light candles, change the ambiance, and say, ah, now we have the power. We don't you know, turn the decibels up on the music and say, now we have the power. That's a different kind of power. The power 
that changes people is the Holy Spirit working through his word, proclaimed, taught, ministered. And so we, we minister, we do God's work, God's way, by his methods. And then we want to consider that he is doing the right thing. He asks the right questions. He sees the right things. He makes the right choice. And he's doing the right thing. Saul and the armies of Israel in their theological amnesia are saying, he is so big. We cannot win. And David, God's anointed in his theological clarity is saying, he is so big, I can't miss. It's a change of perspective, isn't it? And you're struggling with this spiritual battle. You're saying it's so big, it's so overwhelming. That's because you're looking at things not through the eyes of the Lord, but through human eyes. There's a way that God wants you to go. There's a path that he has before you. It may seem difficult. It may have some darkness about it. Just read Pilgrim's Progress. But the reality is, there is a path that God has for you, and you know what? That path is good, and it's not void of trouble. Because even trouble and difficulty are the means by which that God shapes and fashions us. But our perspective is, rather than, oh, this is so big, you can turn it around and say, you know what, God? You've given me the wisdom and the strength and the resources to face this path, and I'm gonna jump on there trusting that you are working through this. But listen to the exchange with David and Goliath, because there's something else that we must see here from the matter of perspective. Goliath speaks, verse 43, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks, referring to his staff? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David replies, you have come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. And here, friends, is what David is saying. A sword, a spear, a javelin? Is that all you got? You come to me in your nine foot six strength with all your bronze and your muscles ripping in front of me? Fine, but you're puny because I come to you in the name of of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I remember growing up in Michigan and my pastor a number of times would say this. When you're in spiritual battle, just remember this. You and God make a majority. We might draw this picture out. Here is Goliath, you know, all nine foot six of him, all strong and powerful. And here is David, this little ruddy-faced youth with a stick and a sling. 
But what you don't see, unless you have the eyes to see in this text, is that behind David, soaring above him, is the God of the universe. And in that context, Goliath is a puny worm. Who is the God of Israel? Who is the Lord of these armies, of these hosts? If Goliath could see what David could see, he'd be shaking in his boots. And David says, I might stand here with just a stick, as you call it. I might look to you like a freckled, baby-faced youth with red hair, but... Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut, your, cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And isn't it interesting that the, the, the narrator here makes, kind of goes out of his way just in the next couple of verses. He, he says, and by the way, just so you remember, David didn't have a sword. I mean, he's making it a point to remind you that he came up against Goliath without a sword and spear. Now friends, there are, there are layers in this story that we must address. They are layers that help us understand or that we must recognize and we must include in the, in the grand scheme of studying this passage, right? And I think that as we look at this text in layers, we must first take the story at face value and see David as a champion of Israel. We must see in looking at his example, um, his obedience of faith, how he saw what was going on, and he looked at his identity with God, and he trusted in that, and that was what fueled him to do the things that he's doing in this text. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The men of Israel and Saul had lost sight of that. And it takes this young boy to come on the scene with fresh eyes to jump in and to exercise faith. And so David's object of faith is the God of Israel. And he knows him to be trustworthy, a covenant-keeping God who will deliver his people in their times of distress when they lean on him for help. But as we look at verses 46 and 47, we encounter two more layers Layer one being David's obedience of faith. But the battle will send a message to two other groups. There's a, there's a message that will be learned by all present in the valley of Elah. That the Lord does not save or deliver or fight with sword and spear. Everyone in that valley would know God did not come and defeat Goliath with a sword and a spear. God delivered his people in the most unusual way. God is more powerful 
than man thinks that he is. And David would later say, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. So he had a perspective that chariots and horses were insignificant when you have a God who is the God of Israel and the God of the universe. But then the next layer you might want to say, or the next group that is addressed here, it says this, to all the earth, that that they may know that there is a God in Israel. All of these events, all of what David did, was not for any kind of self-glory at all. It wasn't to say, look at me. But David ultimately was concerned about the honor of his God. That he is a God worthy of their worship. A God not to be trifled with. A God who fights for his children. Of course, you know the rest of the story. David runs at Goliath, and while he's running, pulls out one of those big stones, puts it in his sling, spins it around, one shot, knocks Goliath to the ground. David goes up, pulls out his huge sword, kills him, chops off his head. Battles done and dusted. I mean, the action is real fast. But the whole lead up to the why of the action helps us see the condition of Israel and what marks this young man as being different. So there's a layer that we need to see the story for what it is, all right? Which now leads us into God's faithfulness. We've seen Israel's failure, we've seen David's faith, but now we wanna see another layer here of God's faithfulness because it's not David that won this battle. David didn't defeat Goliath, ultimately. God defeated Goliath through David. The champion, the deliverer. Now there's a redemptive layer that we need to give attention to. It's a layer in this narrative that is connected to the thread of God's redemptive plan. The thread of God's faithfulness that that is unfolding systematically through the word of God. After Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, that would be Satan, in the garden to disobey the commands and to eat the fruit of the forbidden tree, God pronounces his curse on Satan. You can get there, all right. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What we have here is right after sin in the garden, we have God revealing the gospel. And the gospel is satisfied by the seed of the woman. And we're told here that he will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will crush or will will harm or bruise his heel. So this is a promise that has as its object in seed form a coming deliverer. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He and his. All right, this is a seed form pointing 
to Christ, who is the Messiah, who will hang on the cross, and Satan will think, aha, I've done it. I've defeated him. But there is another blow to come. Because, yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross. He says, it is finished. But then, three days later, Jesus rose from that tomb. And in rising from that tomb, he crushed Satan and his purposes. That was his first crushing. You might want to say there's another one to come yet, and that would be his second coming, ultimately when Jesus will cast Satan into the lake of fire. See, we must be careful here that we don't think that there's some kind of this dualism going on. There's God and there's Satan. They're somehow duking it out out there and, and somehow, well, maybe God's gonna lose or he's back. In, no, God is always, 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 always in control. The story of Job paints that picture. God says to Satan, so where have you been going? And God has to allow Satan to do certain things. It's always the case. God has allowed him to be the prince of the power of the air, to, to have as his domain this world. But there's nothing that Satan does that is out of the control of God. It's all part of God's wisdom of the fabric of this world to keep it right and, and healthy and, and what I want to say, free so that we're not walking around as robots, so that we're making decisions and choices on our own and Satan is doing his thing, but everything that Satan tries to do or thinks that he's doing by his own free will is what God is allowing or actually might even say decreeing to happen. That's a whole other process. But God is in control of all this. And so the gospel is introduced into the story of mankind right at the moment mankind needs it and it is Christ who is seen as the ultimate deliverer and then we press on through scripture and as we do that we are given types and shadows of Christ in story after story. Derek Prime says every deliverance of God's people in the Old Testament tends to anticipate or prefigure the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the ultimate deliverer. Sidney Grydenus says this, the story of David and Goliath is more than a personal scrap. It is more than Israel's king defeating a powerful enemy. It is a small chapter in the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, a battle which reaches its climax in Jesus' victory over Satan, first with his death and resurrection, and finally, at his second coming, when Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Now I have no problem pointing to David as a type of Christ, a pre-picture of Christ in the Old Testament, but we always need to handle types with care. Because it's not everything about David that is admirable, is it? Still, we can handle types confidently when the scriptures are clear of that designation. And why it's clear of that designation is the reality that Jesus is called the son of David. There's a clear and direct connection uh, with Davis, David, mostly in scripture. I mean, if there's one person who is a type of Christ in scripture, it certainly is David. But how is David similar to Jesus? What comparisons can we make from this text that 
point through David to Christ. First of all, David was the man whom the Lord chose and in whom he delighted. The Lord Jesus was the one whom the Father chose to be our savior, our champion, in whom the Father delights. David received the Spirit of God to do the mighty deeds that he did on behalf of Israel. And our Lord Jesus was the Lord's anointed to whom the Father gave the Spirit without measure. David slew Goliath as the anointed one. Our Savior overcame Satan and all his works as God's anointed one. David overcame Goliath with a weapon that Goliath scorned. Our Savior overcame Satan with a weapon, the cross, that Satan at first scorned and those who witnessed it scorned. Having caused Goliath to fall to the ground, David used Goliath's own weapon to cut off his head and our Savior took Satan's own weapon, death, and by it overcame all his works. David won the victory He triumphed over all his foes while the people of Israel stood to benefit from all he had done. And our Lord Jesus, the Lord's anointed, won the victory over sin and death on behalf of his people so that we might share all the benefits. David's victory was good news for the whole of Israel. Chapter 18, verse 5 tells us that. Our Savior's victory was good news for all. On this day, and by God's help, David was the champion of Israel. And our Lord Jesus is the perfect champion. It is upon him our eyes need to be fixed. That is the secret of faith, keeping our eyes on him. He is the author. He is the perfecter of our faith. So you can see that as we see David in the story, we gotta see David for who he is as part of the narrative, as part of the unfolding story. But there is also this connection to this thread that goes from the beginning of the book of the Bible, from Genesis 3.15, and continues on and reaches to the cross. And it's landing in this story, revealing to us that David is prefiguring Christ. Now I want to step back a little bit. The authorial intent, the intent of the author of 1 Samuel is to reveal David, the the new chosen king as the Lord's anointed who delivers his people. In other words, the point of him recording this for his readers is to show this, uh, this unfolding story of God raising up a leader and this person being David, David being God's chosen king. But there's also, along with that authorial intent, there is the spirit's intent to connect the author's intent to the rest of the story of scripture. So this is also screaming at us, look to Christ. See him. So how do we apply the teachings of this passage to our lives? The promises about God still apply to us today who are the spiritual seed of Abraham. We are the beneficiaries of these covenant promises. We who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior are the recipients of his grace 
and we can see as he sees. We can trust that he will deliver. We can trust that he is the one that fights those spiritual battles for us. Now I want to bring it down now to the close. Did you notice how much time we have left? Just flying away, isn't it? Be the longest sermon I've ever preached. Yeah, that's right. Let's, let's finish this up then with, with really, these are really application, calm concluding thoughts, but these are just really applying what we've learned and even this last section together, okay? Number one, are we concerned with the honor of Christ? Just I want you to think about that. Are you concerned with the honor of Christ? Let me, let me paint a couple of pictures for you. When a couple is in marital difficulty, fighting with each other day after day. They're, they're both believers. They, they claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. They, they claim that, 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 that he is their Lord and Savior, their master. And they're finding, finding themselves in this conflict polarized from each other. The question they need to ask is, am I honoring Christ in my marriage? Are you honoring Christ by your attitude? Are you honoring Christ by your desires? Are you honoring Christ by the language and the tone of your voice when you're talking to your spouse? Are you honoring Christ by being honest about your pride, about being honest about your disobedience or your selfish idolatry? See, the question always goes back to in my behavior, in my thinking, in my speech, am I giving honor to God? That can also come in a relationship with parents with their children. Are parents being honoring to God and how they're speaking and what they're saying? That true, that is true also of how, parent, how young people are responding or children responding to their parents. Are they responding in a way that honors God? And if it honors God, it's certainly gonna honor their parents, right? So this, this idea of honoring fleshes out. Do we care about the reputation of Christ? Now I know we live in a context where there are tons of people that dishonor Christ and they probably dishonor Christ in ways that they don't even realize they're doing. Maybe their language is such that they're just awesome, constantly using the Lord's name in vain. They just don't realize it. They've just gotten used to it. Maybe you work next to someone and they're just constantly, it's like every sentence, boom, 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 boom. How will you honor God in that context? Did you say, you know what, I'm gonna have to endure? And sometimes you're gonna have to say, you know what, because I love this person, I'm gonna have to ask for God's strength. Or maybe you say, hey listen, you know, I, you're my coworker, I appreciate you. There's probably a lot of nice things about that person, but can I ask you to consider what you say because I am a child of Christ and every time you use his name in vain, or every time you speak this way, that may not be their language, right? This is what you do to me. This is, how, this, is, this is what happens with me. You're seeking to address the honor of God in the context of where you live. Are we concerned with the honor of Christ? Secondly, are you concerned with what happened? I'm concerned with this PowerPoint right now. 
There we go. Got it? Are you concerned about the power of Christ in your life? Let me read these passages. You might want to follow along. Philippians 2, 13. Again, we're looking at the question here. Are you concerned about the power of Christ in your life? This is what scripture says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but more, uh, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul, under the inspiration of God, is telling believers and the Philippian believers here that they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now this doesn't mean work in order to be saved. This means that they are saved. They are God's children. But now what they're doing as God's children is they are working out their salvation. They're working hard at growing to become more and more like Christ. They have a responsibility to do that. But notice what it says. For it is God who works in you. Right? You work out your own salvation, and in working out your own salvation, who is actually at work? It's God who is working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, so here we have David standing before Goliath. Oh, it's all about David. No, it's not. David is simply saying, I am going to do this, but it's going to be God who works through me. Get that? So when you are facing this this struggle with sin, it is, yes, you who are saying, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to apply the things that God has called me to apply, but I'm going to rest on the fact that it is God that is working through me to accomplish his purposes in my life. Secondly, 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things And the NIV, I think, does a good job here by saying everything we need that pertain to life and and godliness. So God has given us everything we need for life, our spiritual life, for living, but also for godliness. That would be the beginning of of our salvation to the time that we're called home. It's all this pursuit of godliness. God has given us everything we need now to live our lives and to live our lives in such a way that we are growing in Christ. And notice what it says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, to know our identity in Christ, and when we know our identity in Christ, and we know the benefits of that identity in Christ, then we are able to apply that knowledge and the power that God gives in this pursuit of him. So this power of Christ in your life is not some kind of a mystical power, it's simply God shaping us and fashioning us through what he is revealing about himself, being God, and in doing that, he is calling us then to pursue being like his son, Jesus Christ. So we live out of the power that God has granted us, and we're trusting with a heart that is intent on his glory and in his excellence. So in other words, will you live with worry, with fear, with timidity, and depression, or will you put on Christ and face each day with his strength because you are, you're looking and you're, you're thinking clearly based on your identity with him. And finally, this kind of flows out of these two. This last one is this. In what ways are you suffering from Christoamnesia? We talked about this. 
ways in your life that you've lost sight of your identity in Christ. You forget to fight the battle because you've forgotten who you are in Christ. So you can sit here on Sunday, you can be at a home group on a Sunday night or a Friday, but another